This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 425,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership, complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel any time and keep the free book or keep going with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your offer. This week, I'm going to recommend Midnight Riot by Ben Aronovich. Look, it's been a rough couple of months for us all, I think, and sometimes you just need a little escapism. And what's more escapist than what if Harry Potter, but police and adult? It's a lot of fun, so if you want to check it out, go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your copy. Hello and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 351, The Rising Sun Will Come to Us from Heaven, part 3. As we saw last week, the fall of the Tokugawa shogunate did not immediately improve things for Japan's surviving Christian community. If anything, it made things slightly worse. An old military government where the leadership viewed the Christian ban more through the lens of tradition and established political practice was replaced by one that had a much larger contingent of anti-Christian ideologues, and whose views toward the religion were colored both by established superstitions about the evil religion, and by reverence towards the emperor tied up with Shinto ideology. What really turned the fate of Japanese Christians around was not the restoration itself, but the 1871 Iwakura mission. We haven't talked about the Iwakura mission in a bit, so here is a quick refresh. In 1871, the Meiji government decided to dispatch a massive overseas embassy to the United States and to Europe. Between the senior administrators, scholars, students, and others sent overseas as a part of the trip, over 100 people in total participated. The basic idea of the embassy was threefold. First, with a new government in power that had expressed at least some commitment to adopting Western practices, the mission was to begin preliminary attempts at renegotiating the unequal treaties with the West. Remember, those treaties were theoretically premised on a system of racial and national hierarchy where non-white nations were uncivilized and thus not accorded the same degree of rights and respect as white nations were justifying things like restrictions on their ability to put tariffs on Western goods or extraterritorial laws which exempted Europeans from their courts. Second, the mission members were to observe everything they could of the West while they were there in order to start building a catalog of potential reforms, essentially a sort of shopping trip to the West to see what was worth adopting for Japan. Third, and finally, the goal of the mission was to build positive PR for the new regime. More than a few Westerners had expressed concern over the nationalistic rhetoric of the Restoration, as well as the leadership's embrace of Shinto ideologues intellectually descended from nationalistic scholars like Hirata Atsutane. Rounding up Christians and forcibly relocating them, as we discussed last episode, certainly didn't do much to improve the impression 
that Japan had been taken over by a group of radicals who were just as likely to try and wind the clock back to let's just try and kill all the foreigners as they were to make good on westernizing the country. The mission is called the Iwakura Mission because its leading figure was Iwakura Tomomi, a Kuge aristocrat and senior advisor to the emperor. Iwakura was also the mission's lead diplomat, he was the one who would try to play nice with all the western powers. The Iwakura mission was foundational to the future of Japan for a lot of reasons. The observations of its members would fundamentally shape the character of the Meiji state. For our purposes, however, what matters about the mission is the way in which it drove home very clearly just how important toleration of Christianity was to winning over the Westerners. This fact became very clear very quickly. The first stop for the mission was the United States, with mission members arriving in San Francisco and then taking the fancy new transcontinental railroad out to the East Coast. There, Iwakura and the others met with the government of President Ulysses S. Grant, with most of the actual discussion of the treaties falling to Secretary of State Hamilton Fish. Fish made it very clear early in the negotiations that he wanted to see a clause in any new treaty ensuring religious freedom and thus protecting Japanese Christians. Iwakura initially resisted this posture, stating, not without some justification, that writing something like that into a treaty, instead of Japan's own domestic laws, would invite interference in Japan's internal politics from foreign states. Ultimately, however, Iwakura was forced to concede the point. He was convinced by Japan's ambassador to the United States, a young former samurai named Mori Arinori, that Westerners would never accept Japan as an equal if the country didn't guarantee religious freedom and allow Christians to worship openly. Mori, by the way, would eventually be assassinated on the eve of the announcement of Japan's new constitution by a right-wing radical. His crime, among other things, was being a suspected Christian and being too overtly pro-Western in his politics. But that's an issue for later. What matters now is that this moment was something of a turning point in government thinking about Christianity. As one of the expedition's junior diplomats, who would eventually be not-so-junior, Ito Hirabumi put it when he went back to Tokyo to brief the government, the logic was straightforward enough. The West would never accept Japan as an equal without the government allowing religious freedom. The chief goal of the Meiji state was to get that acceptance, and thus remove the restrictions of the unequal treaties. Thus, the Christian ban just had to be lifted. The treaty negotiations between Fish and Iwakura eventually fell apart due to an interesting technicality. Iwakura was under instructions to try and arrange a massive conference between all the Western powers and Japan to try and renegotiate all of the unequal treaties at once. This was to avoid any issues surrounding the most favored nation clauses in these treaties. Such a clause guarantees that if another country negotiates a favorable deal with you, you have to extend that same deal to all other most favored nations. Japan had signed clauses to this effect with a lot of Western powers, and thus renegotiating individual treaties would be hard to do unless those clauses could be scrapped. However, the United States was not willing to participate in such a big conference. It preferred doing deals one-on-one. -on -one. Even though these U.S.-Japan talks failed, the realization that religious freedom was going to be a requirement of equality with the West 
stuck around, particularly once the expedition made its way to Europe. European statesmen levied the same critiques of Japanese religious policy as their American counterparts. Clearly, it was not just the Americans who cared about this. And that point was enough to carry the day. By February 1873, the government agreed to take down notice boards containing prohibitions against Christianity, with the face-saving excuse that the prohibitions were already well-known, and thus there was no need to repeat them publicly. By March, prefectural governments were instructed to allow Christians living in internal exile to go home. The government even agreed to cover their relocation expenses. By August of that year, the last of the exiles were released. This really was the beginning of toleration for Christianity in Japan, at least for the first time since the early 1600s. The religion could now be practiced openly, and yet there's something important I want to note about how this came about. Remember, the prohibitions were instituted in the first place out of fear that Christianity would undermine the Japanese state, that Japanese Christians would be a four-and-fifth column against the established Japanese order. In other words, Christianity was banned not out of ideological concerns, but fundamentally out of security ones. The ban was rescinded, in turn, not because of any sort of genuine acceptance of the principle of religious freedom on the part of the Meiji leadership. Iwakura Tomomi and the other mission members simply came to believe that this was a requirement to get the unequal treaties renegotiated. In other words, the ban was rescinded not out of a shift in the ideological landscape, but once again for reasons of national security. Why does this matter? Well, I think it's pretty clear as we go further into the Meiji era that while Christianity was legally tolerated, it was never really accepted by the government and continued to be viewed with suspicion. After all, it's not like their opinions of the evil religion had really shifted all that much, it's just that circumstances had made those opinions far harder to convert into policy. But still, it's now the 1870s and Japanese Christians can practice openly for the first time in a long time. The religious landscape they're practicing in, though, looks very different from what it did back in the heyday of the samurai. For one thing, there's a new kid on the block, the Protestants. The Protestant Reformation, as you likely learned in high school, was kicked off in 1517 when a German monk, Martin Luther, published a long-form academic critique of some aspects of the theology of the Roman Catholic Church, which was dominant in Central and Western Europe at this time. Thus, Protestantism, which is an umbrella that covers a pretty broad array of theologies, was around during the Sengoku period, but Protestant nations spent far more of the 1500s focused on trying to win bloody religious wars in Europe against Catholic states rather than missionizing overseas, and by the time Protestant sailors made their way to Japan in 1600, Christianity was already viewed with some suspicion. The Protestant, English, and Dutch both ended up agreeing not to missionize in exchange for being able to get trading privileges in Japan. By the mid-1800s, however, things looked very different. Not only was Protestantism well-established theologically and thus no longer subject to persecution, the leading power of the era, the United Kingdom, was an officially Protestant state within established, that is to say government-backed, church of its own, the Church of England. And yes, before anyone sends me angry tweets, I know Scotland and Ireland played by somewhat different rules in terms of their religious policies, 
but this is a Japanese history podcast, not a politics of British Christianity podcast. I'm trying to keep things moving here. Anyway, this is to say that now not only were Catholic missionaries coming back to Japan, but for the first time, Protestant missionaries were as well. Among those Protestant missionaries, by the way, was a young American who was a doctor by day and a lay missionary by night by the name of James Curtis Hepburn, who lived in Japan from 1859 to 1882. Today, however, he is not best remembered for either his doctoring or his missionizing, but for the system he developed to transliterate Japanese words using Latin characters, Hepburn Romanization, which is still the main system used to express Japanese phonetically in English and other Latin alphabet-using languages around the world. To a certain extent, Protestant ideas actually found more success among the elite of Japan. The former samurai class, which still dominated a lot of the government and military leadership, generally tended to be more attracted to Protestantism than to Catholicism. In particular, the relative austerity of some branches of Protestant theology, combined with the emphasis on internal cultivation of faith rather than external displays of piety, played well to samurai who had been educated in similar intellectual values derived from Chinese Neo-Confucianism. In addition, there was now a new phenomenon of the Japanese student going abroad. During the Meiji period, huge numbers of Japanese students, mostly though not only men, went overseas to study in the West and to bring back what they had learned to help build the Meiji state. As we've covered before, regardless of what they were sent overseas to study, engineering, medicine, law, whatever, they ended up being exposed to the rich tapestry of 19th century life in the West. Thus, many of these students ended up bringing back not just technical know-how, but ideas and ideologies from the West to Japan. And one of the ideas that ended up coming back to Japan with these students was Christianity, because some of these students did convert, particularly those who lived in the West for longer periods of time. Finally, the politics of this era were intellectually tumultuous in a way that provided a lot of openings for Christianity. When the Meiji state came to power, its legitimacy was, let's call it, suspect at best. After all, Essentially, the restoration of power to the emperor was a thinly veiled military coup which rested in the final analysis on the bayonets of powerful domains like Satsuma and Choshu. Sure, if you were real deep in on Japanese history, maybe you could see the links in the chain from the old shogunate back to the emperor and justify a restoration that way, but in practical terms, the emperor had been irrelevant for centuries. Listen to us because this one guy you may or may not have heard of before says so is not a particularly compelling argument. The ideology of this new state, meanwhile, was, let's call it, somewhat murky. The Meiji government had dedicated itself to a policy of bunmei kaika, of civilization and enlightenment, but honestly, what the hell does that even mean? Are we scrapping everything about Japan, throwing on some top hats and learning to speak English? Are we trying to thread the needle like Imperial China was doing and find a balance between Eastern ethics and Western science? Are we doing something else? Nobody was quite sure. Indeed, even the government leadership was split on issues like what kind of and how many Western-style reforms to implement. In this cultural foment, new ideologies rushed to fill the vacuum. 
We've talked before about some of them, like French republicanism and British conservatism, that formed the ideological backbone of the freedom and people's rights movement. Christianity was another such entrant into that ideological battleground. I've been unable to find good conversion statistics for the 1870s in particular, but anecdotally it certainly seemed like the religion was picking up steam. Japanese citizens were being converted by missionaries both at home and abroad, and tellingly, the converts were coming from a pretty broad social spectrum. Where, say, Christian missions in China had mostly succeeded among the more impoverished and socially marginalized, the powerful Confucian scholars who ran the government would have lost their ideological justification for rule if they subordinated their Confucianism to Christianity. In Japan, converts were coming from the middle class and even the upper class, the now Shizoku, formerly samurai, who still represented the most educated group in the country. And to cap it all off, said converts enjoyed government protection of their beliefs for the first time in a long time. In 1873, the government abandoned the anti-Christian prohibitions, and 16 years later, Ito Hirabumi and the other drafters of the Meiji Constitution would include in the empire's governing document Article 28, which protected religious freedom, kind of. What do I mean, kind of? Well, here's the text of the article. Japanese subjects shall, within limits not prejudicial to peace and order, and not antagonistic to their duties as subjects, enjoy freedom of religious belief. Notice the number of qualifiers in that sentence. Freedom of religious belief had to be both not prejudicial to peace and order, and what the hell does that mean, and in keeping with the duties of a subject of the Japanese emperor. That is, a lot of modifiers. That constitutional protection was, frankly, once again more about the idea that the only way to be accepted as modern by the West was to ensure religious freedom, rather than any genuine acceptance of Christianity. Indeed, given that the history of the idea of religious freedom in Japan was so tied up with Christianity, you could read Article 28 as more of a, sure, we'll allow Christianity, but Christians don't get any funny ideas about causing problems. Christianity was legal because it had to be, but for those in power it was still a cause for suspicion. But I imagine if you were a Japanese Christian at the time, it still seemed like a big step up. So now we have a new generation of Japanese Christians facing the strange new world of the Meiji era. What did that look like for them? Well, of course it's hard to say, because any attempt to do so would be generalizing. However, we can look at some productive examples to draw conclusions from. For example, Dr. Helen Ballhatchett wrote a fascinating short biography of one of the more prominent converts of the era, Kozaki Hiromichi, whose intellectual trajectory and career does a good job of giving at least some sense of the intellectual concerns of Japanese Christians for this time. Kozaki was of samurai background and was only 12 by the Western Reckoning when the Meiji Restoration took place. In 1871, he nabbed a spot in a Western-style school in Kumamoto, the former Domain Academy now converted to a more traditional school. He hoped to use his training in a new curriculum modeled after schools in the United States to go into politics. As a child of the samurai class, Kozaki was initially reared up with a strong Neo-Confucian mentality, typical of the ideas which dominated the old samurai domain schools. 
Like many of his classmates, as well as the Japanese head of his school, he rejected Christianity as a rational superstition. Kozaki, however, took this a step further. He started trying to missionize to the American instructor at the school, a Civil War veteran named Leroy Lansing Janes, to convert him to Confucianism. However, instead, Janes was able to convert Kozaki to Christianity, as well as a band of 30 or so other students. In fact, Janes ended up converting so many pupils at the school that the Kumamoto Prefecture government would end up shutting it down under pressure from conservatives who felt the school was producing too many Christians. Instead, Kozaki and the other converts ended up relocating to Kyoto and joining the newly established Doshisha School, now Doshisha University, established by the American-educated convert Nijima Joel. After getting his Doshisha education, Kozaki would move to Tokyo and become one of the leading figures of Japan's Congregational Church Movement, a type of church organization common in some forms of Protestantism, where individual congregations are run in a more self-governing way. From there, Kozaki would spend his life as an active proponent of Christianity and a writer on Christian subjects. His most famous work from the 1880s is called Seikyo Shinron, or New Theses on Government and Religion. Kozaki's basic line of argument here was that Christianity was not only compatible with his status as a Japanese subject, but actually essential for Japan going forward, and to boot, it was compatible with the best doctrines of Confucianism more broadly. His basic position was that Christianity brought new values to Japan centered on individual rights over the collective, and a positive future-oriented vision of salvation. It rejected aspects of Confucianism like rigid hierarchies and a past-oriented worldview, while maintaining the best parts, like the emphasis on personal virtue and ethical self-cultivation. The fancy academic term that Dr. Balhatchet uses here is fulfillment theory. Kozaki positioned Christianity as a completion of Confucianism by replacing the parts of it that don't work. There is, of course, a lot that is problematic about that argument, starting with the first and most obvious objection that both Confucianism and Christianity are complex traditions with many different strands and theories attached to them, and to attempt to essentialize either one down to a few basic ideas like that is at best intellectually dubious. Frankly, you can definitely make a Confucian case for equality, social democracy, and individual rights, Arguably, you can make a Christian case for the kind of social hierarchy, communitarianism, and past-oriented worldview that Kozaki paints as inherently Confucian. But what matters here is really not the validity of Kozaki's argument, but the way in which his argument fits into the framework of the era. In a time when suspicion of Christianity still ran high, he was trying to argue for its spiritual compatibility with Japanese-ness as it was understood during the Meiji era. And that position, as Dr. Balhatchet notes, is very different from the person who was, in retrospect, the most famous Japanese Christian of this era, Uchimura Kanzo. We've talked about Uchimura before, he's probably most famous for an incident in early January 1891. Uchimura was, at this point, a schoolteacher at the prestigious Tokyo First Higher Normal School, Tokyo Ichiko. He was a well-educated guy who had graduated from Amherst after a long stint in the U.S., and was thus 
exactly the kind of person such a high-end school would want on their faculty. But that year, the Japanese government rolled out a new facet of the education system, the Imperial Rescript on Education. The Rescript, which essentially lays out an extremely nationalistic and Confucian view of education, declaring that school is all about learning to respect your social superiors and becoming a, quote, good and faithful subject, was to be presented to every school in the country, along with a portrait of the Meiji Emperor. Schools were to have unveiling ceremonies. At Uchimura's school, this would involve an all-school assembly where the text of the rescript would be read, and then each member of the faculty would come and bow to the portrait and to the school's copy of the rescript. Uchimura, owing to his Christian faith, refused to bow. Well, I should say later in his life he would say he refused to bow, more contemporary accounts, including Uchimura's own, describe him as simply hesitating to bow. I'll be frank, I'm not sure which version is true. But frankly, again, doesn't really matter. Uchimura was immediately bombarded with accusations of disrespect towards the emperor and anti-Japanese sentiment, especially once his story made its way beyond the walls of the school and into the popular press. Under a barrage of criticism for hiring someone who clearly did not respect the emperor, the school was forced to let him go. Uchimura was bombarded by the non-Christian majority with accusations that he was, in essence, a traitor. The whole affair was treated in the press as confirmation of the worst sort of stereotypes about Christianity, that Japanese Christians were inherently disloyal and despised their own country in favor of their faith. Despite a withering barrage of criticism so intense that Uchimura actually started to develop stress-related health issues, Uchimura decided to stay in the public sphere. He got active in journalism and, among other things, tackled some of the first big pollution scandals in Japanese history with his writing. He was also consistently and vocally critical of the government, especially its imperial policies in Korea and Taiwan, as well as its overseas wars against China and Russia. He also got very active in a part of the Japanese Christian community, the Mukyokai, or non-church movement. This is more or less what it sounds like. Mukyokai members believed that formal church organizations were actually a hindrance to the pure faith emphasized by most forms of Protestantism, and thus operated without them. By the time Uchimura Kanzo died in 1930, he was one of the nation's more famous social critics. Today, he tends to be remembered fondly for standing up to the government. Like I said, he's probably the most famous Japanese Christian from this era, and likely the one you'd hear the most about if you took a course on modern Japanese history in college or something like that. But here's the thing. At the time, Uchimura Kanzo was considered to be pretty fringe by most Japanese Christians, and was deeply unpopular with the Christian community in Japan after the whole imperial rescript incident. He had, in the consensus opinion, given Christians a bad name by feeding into the suggestion that they weren't really loyal to the Japanese state. Why couldn't he bow to the stupid portrait? That doesn't even count as worship, it's a picture. Kozaki Hiromichi and his attempt to equate Christianity with loyalty to the state and loyalty to Japanese tradition, that represented a far more mainstream position for most Japanese Christians, who in the end tended as a collective to be far more concerned with being accepted as real members of the Japanese community 
than with trying to make bold stands in the name of their faith. And to be fair, that impulse is very understandable, particularly in light of the way that the tempo, for lack of a better word, of Christianity changed in the 1890s. Where in the previous two decades, Christianity seemed to be on the upswing in the country, finally protected with Western missionaries coming to spread it openly, in the 1890s, Christianity began to contract. The growth of the faith slowed, then stopped, and then, if anything, began to reverse. Only about 7,000 people were baptized across all of Japan in the entirety of the 1890s, and about half of those would end up apostatizing. Outside of larger cities like Tokyo and Yokohama, attempts to build inroads for Christianity more or less fell flat. The religion became, and more or less still is to this day, an urban, middle-class phenomenon. What happened? Why did the faith fail to keep growing? Well, simply put, because the times were a-changing. On the one hand, the period of full steam ahead westernization in Meiji culture was coming to a close, where in the early days of the imperial era there was a sense that all things foreign were superior to all things Japanese, by the 1890s the counter-trend was building strength, a revived sense of cultural nationalism was leading to a renewed interest in things Japanese, as well as a rejection of blanket westernization. This was particularly true once the Meiji state started attaining its first overseas triumphs, such as the victory over China in 1895, which seemed to confirm in a lot of cultural nationalists' eyes that there was indeed something special about Japanese-ness. In this patriotic atmosphere, a foreign religion was much less attractive. Second, in both government and society at large, there was something of a public turn against Christianity. By the 1880s, the governing Meiji clique had purged any of its members whose positions were considered to be too liberal or too pro-Western. The last such liberal, Okuma Shiganobu, got the boot in 1881. The remaining members of the leadership were all conservative authoritarians, with little patience for ideologies they deemed as counterproductive to their vision of a unified Japan. That's why, for example, the imperial rescript on education came to be in the first place. This was a government-backed attempt to promote a very specific vision of what loyalty to Japan was supposed to look like. It looked like being a good subject of the emperor. Christianity, though it had to be legally protected to get the approval of the Western powers, was still considered by most of the leadership to be at odds with their vision. The suspicion, inherited from Tokugawa times, that Christians were inherently disloyal to the state lingered on. And in society more broadly, there was a turn against Christianity as well. This growing sense of cultural chauvinism was clear in the backlash against Uchimura Kanzo, whose crime of disrespecting the emperor made national headlines, but it's far from the most spectacular example. That would have to go to the fate of Mori Arinori the same government leader who had counseled Iwakura Tomobi on the importance of tolerating Christians back in 1872, and I guess I kind of spoiled his fate earlier in the episode. Upon returning from his stint as ambassador to the United States, Mori had become education minister and had been among those pushing to promote the ideas of the imperial rescript on education. Mori was a statist who believed that Japanese children had to be inculcated with respect and reverence towards the government above all else.
However, his career was cut short on February 12, 1889. As he was preparing to leave his home in Tokyo to go to the official ceremony where Japan's new constitution would be announced, including its clause ensuring religious freedom, an assassin burst into his home and stabbed him to death. That assassin was a former Choshu Domain samurai named Nishino Buntaro. Nishino was killed by Mori's bodyguards trying to escape, but left behind a letter explaining his actions. According to Nishino, what was Mori's crime? Disrespecting the traditions of Japan and, quote, plotting to destroy our country by undermining its foundations in the form of the emperor, unquote. Nishino was referring specifically to a reported incident where Mori had behaved disrespectfully on a visit to Issei Shrine, one of the most significant shrines associated with the imperial family. For example, Mori had supposedly refused to remove his shoes while entering a part of the shrine. Likely, this was just Mori being bullheaded about acting as westernized as possible. However, ever since Mori's stint in the United States, a rumor that he was a secret Christian had been in the offing. To my knowledge, there is zero evidence of this, but the rumor is still repeated as true in some places today, and undoubtedly it's part of the reason why someone like Nishino would have suspected Mori of being disloyal to the emperor and trying to undermine the nation. In that sort of atmosphere, where people were killing government ministers out of the suspicion that they were Christian, I can see why suddenly the faith of the West would look a lot less appealing. At the same time, Christianity had developed new ideological competitors in the country. In the 1870s and 1880s, Christianity had been the new idea coming into Japan. It was a modern religion associated with fascinating values that were at once familiar, who doesn't love faithfulness and charity, and new, this idea of a one true God and an emphasis on faith alone, fascinating stuff. As Irokawa Daikichi puts it in his book The Culture of the Meiji Period, quote, many Japanese during the Meiji period who were not able to see the West at first hand received some understanding of modern civil society by entering the world of Christianity and coming into contact with the atmosphere of God, missionaries, and the church, unquote. But starting in the 1880s and then the 1890s, new political ideas began to take the place of Christianity in terms of providing this sense of civil society, of engagement with a broader world. The political parties and their ideas of liberalism and democracy were attractive to some. For others, it was the arrival of more subversive notions like anarchism, socialism, and Marxism that struck their fancy. Regardless, if one wanted to be truly modern, there were now options other than going to church. But of course, Christianity is not going anywhere. It's not like the church collapsed or something. But it would never again grow to be as culturally relevant as it had been in the early days of the Meiji period. So what happens next? Well, for that, you'll have to turn in next week, because that's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Special thanks this week to new patrons Karna, Chris Davis, Mark Hayden, and Ben Nuttall for donating to support the show. To join them, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit your ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at isaacmeyer.net, that's I-S-A-A-C-M-E-Y-E-R.net, or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week for part four.